So please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. And forgive my voice today. Um, We're going to read verses 17 through 20 again today. If it sounds familiar, that's because we read these verses last week. Um, But we only had a quick overview, I guess, last week. And so... Um, we're going to dig in a lot deeper today, and I'm just going to ask you, I won't, I won't ask you if you have to stand up and, and all that but, and read aloud, but if you can follow along with your eyes, there is something very strange about the slides. I don't think they, uh, don't think they came through correctly. The format didn't come through. That's all right. We'll see what happens. Paper. <laughs> yeah, paper. <laughs> I think you should be able to follow along. It'll be all right. Um, <clears throat> This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Would you bow with me? <clears throat> Father, I just uh, thank you for this morning. I thank you that uh, everybody that's here is here. And I pray for those who are out uh, sick and those who are taking care of those who are out sick. Pray for those, uh, Lord, who are traveling. We ask that you uh, protect each one, Lord. We, we pray for a hedge of angels around our congregation, Lord, wherever we are. Uh, we lift up to you this nation. We lift up our our leaders uh, federally, statewide, um, locally. We pray that you give them hearts for you. We pray, Father, that uh, you give wisdom and discernment to those who make decisions for the people of this country and, uh, and save them, Lord, for those who are unsaved. Uh, open their eyes to the truth. Um, Father, we pray this morning that everybody that's here will be ready to receive the seed Thank you, God, for the opportunity to be able to preach your word to your people. Um, what a blessing. I just ask that, I ask that everybody that, that uh, is here and everybody that's at home watching and everybody that maybe hears later will respond to uh, the truth that's here, Father, because there's something we all need to hear. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so while the kids are playing bingo, uh, let's talk about what just happened before today's text, okay? Luke begins, verse 17, with, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. What is the the this that he's referring to? Last week's passage contained a couple of of very interesting stories that were kind of interrelated. First, we read that God was performing miracles through the Apostle Paul in a very unusual way. Uh, you remember this? People were taking items of clothing and, and personal articles that, that Paul had just, just merely touched, and then they would take those things to people that were sick and people that were demon-possessed, and they were being healed. But then Luke contrasts this with a group of Jewish exorcists who tried to heal a demon-possessed man. And what happened? you remember? He what? It did not work very well, no. He sent them running home, Scripture says, naked and bleeding with their metaphorical tails tucked, right? So, so 
What a difference between these two narratives. You know, one of them is empowered by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, who could drive out a legion of demons simply by commanding them. And then the other was a group of guys who knew Christ in name only. Two different identities, two completely different results. Anyway, so when the people of Ephesus started to put two and two together, we we looked at the fact that they considered, hey, you know what? I think this Christ is supreme, right? I think he might actually be the real deal. And that was kind of the overall point of last week's message. You know, this, this this is kind of one of the last slides that we had last week. We see that Christ is supreme in every way. And also, because of his supremacy, he deserves a certain response from us, particularly allegiance. But we're left with an important question regarding allegiance to Christ, and that is, what does this actually look like? What does allegiance to Christ actually look like? And that's what we're hoping to explore today. So we're going to go back to verse 17. We're going to dig into what it means to truly have allegiance to Christ. Luke writes, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And again, this apparently being Christ's power over everything on one hand, and then the devil's power over non-believers on the other hand, all right? One is evidenced by miracles through Paul, and the other is evidenced by the failure of these non-believing exorcists. And Luke specified that it was, it was both Jews and Greeks who learned of these instances, which goes to show it was a, it was a very well-known thing, these, these two events. They, it wasn't confined to a, like a specific community. Because Jews and Greeks still didn't intermingle a whole lot except within the church. And so this was a a widespread uh, story of this Jewish exorcist's failures and and of the the articles of Paul. So anyway, uh, as a result, it says, and fear fell upon them all. I want to pause there. We actually talked a little bit about fearing the Lord last week, but I want to reiterate that fear of the Lord for the Christian is a different type of fear than a fear that a non-believer would experience. However, both kinds of fear are valuable, okay? A believer has a healthy fear of a child toward a loving uh, uh, yet strict father. And a, a fear that should produce obedience But the obedience should come from from gratitude and from respect, as well as a desire not to be punished for rebelling, right? Should be a little bit of that too. But nonetheless, there should be an understanding between a child and a father that discipline is not to destroy, it's to produce transformation. Parental discipline should not be strictly punitive, ever. It should be corrective. And that's the kind of fear that we should have of God, knowing that he will correct us, knowing that he will do things for the purpose of our discipline, but not for our harm. However, a non-believer who hears the gospel might realize that he is an object of the wrath and judgment of a righteous God who hates wickedness. Now, this kind of fear may lead to belief if the person is willing to accept that they deserve destruction and that, and that God has provided forgiveness through his crucified and resurrected son to those who turn to him in faith. 
Well, in either case, fear can bring good fruit into the lives of those who experience it. In this particular instance in Acts 19, I'll bet both types of fear were present. It says, so fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. That's a word we don't use a whole lot in today's vernacular. Extol means to praise, to lift up high. Okay? So another thing, by the way, if you're thinking Thanksgiving and you heard lift up high, I meant lift up high. Okay? Just to clarify. We're not talking about pies. Okay. So a person uh, grasps the supremacy of Christ, and one thing we can expect to see is them extolling the name of Jesus. You know, I look around this room, I see a lot I see a lot of married couples, okay? And I want to ask you, when you were first dating, when you were first getting to know one another, some of you are like, boy, that was a long time ago. When you were first getting to know one another, whenever you discovered something new, something special, something wonderful about that person, what did you do? Did you keep it to yourself? Probably not. What, you, you praised that person, right? You told all your friends about how great they were. Oh, he opened the door for me. You know, boy, she can bake, let me tell you. You know, whatever the case may be, you're telling everybody because it's good news to you. You bragged on them. It was one of the ways that you expressed your love and your interest in that person. And ideally, you're still doing that. Whoa, I saw that look. <laughs> I better look away so nobody knows where I'm looking. No, that's... <laughs> Woo. Uh, I'm thankful to keep finding things to love about my bride of more than 23 years, and I'll tell you if you ask, and even if you don't sometimes. Um, but, but in this passage, people, they were discovering that there was a personal God who loved them deeply and who would heal them from demons and from diseases. And this, this was a fairly new thing, especially for the Greeks, right? Because their so-called you know, gods were basically just like super powerful humans, they just they had all the all the faults of people, but they're magnified by the fact that they're really powerful. If you've read any Greek mythology, you know what I'm talking about. But this is this is an all-powerful God who truly loved them so much that he sent his own son as a Messiah to die on the cross to pay for their sins and then raised him from the dead. That is good news. Very different from what they were used to. And the evidence of the truth of this news is in all these miracles that are being performed in Jesus' name. Okay, So, so they're willing to, to proclaim their allegiance to Christ by publicly extolling Jesus, by lifting up his name. And if you are loyal to Jesus Christ, I encourage you to ask yourself whether you are being faithful in lifting up his name in your sphere of influence, whatever that is. Let's keep reading. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing. I, I, I like this word, but I want to pause here for a couple of reasons. First, because it refers to many of those who are now believers, which I think is a strong indicator that the news of these, these miracles, these signs that were performed in Jesus' name, uh, were leading many people to faith. And the word that's translated miracle back in verse 11, it indicates unusual and, and mighty deeds, Okay? We, I think we overuse the word miracle sometimes. We're just going to throw that out there. You know, oh, your baby is a little miracle. You know, oh, the sunset's a miracle. Guys, these are things that God put into nature to happen the way they do. When God steps outside of nature and does something special, that's what a miracle is. Just pointing that out. Anyway, 
So we know from the Gospels the purpose of miraculous signs, actual miraculous signs, okay, was, <laughs> coupled with his intensely holy life, was to prove that Jesus was preaching the truth about himself and about his Father. He was doing these miracles so people could look at him and go, oh, you know what? He really is who he says he is. So that, that's why these miracles. And there are periods that we see in the life of God's people. In the, light, in the Old Testament, we see them in the life of the church where God allows a much greater level of miraculous activity in order to produce a greater faith response. And I think this appears to be one of those. You know, God's doing something very big here. And anyway, these, these new believers were observing this. And here's what we, we noticed. They didn't just, you know, pray a little prayer and then go on with their lives as though nothing had happened or nothing had changed. They did some things that showed their newfound allegiance, okay? First, they displayed this faith by agreeing with God. Now, this, this is interesting to me how the Greek is translated here. The English word confessing, in my mind, actually fits better with the second part of the sentence. But for whatever reason, that's what the translators of the ESV decided to use here to convey the idea of agreement or of profession. It's basically saying, yep, we know what the truth is now, and we believe in him. It's basically what this is. Okay? Now, the second part is divulging their practices. That has more of a connotation of admitting or even proclaiming the things that they had done that were in tune more with darkness than with light. And I want us to talk about that for just a minute for clarity's sake, okay? Um, in the Ephesian culture, according to Drive Through History, I don't know if you're familiar with that, it's a, a website, but um, Ephesus, was, Ephesus was a Hellenistic city of paganism and mysticism, okay? So you think of paganism and mysticism, and what do you think of? Those are two things we would heavily identify today with the occult, right? We would think of, of like pentagrams and all that weird, nasty stuff. And, and that's kind of what they were into. You know, while occultism was not really frowned upon in most of the ancient world, God commands his, his people throughout all of history, steer clear. <laughs> He's saying, stay away from this stuff. This is bad for you. In the Old Testament, he even commanded that the Israelites put to death those, who, those who, uh, who, who said that they were consulting with the dead, which I believe, honestly, they're probably speaking with demons in reality. Okay? In the New Testament, we're told to avoid witchcraft. Now, the Greek word there, I've told you this before, but we all forget things fast, is pharmakeion, which is where we get our word for pharmaceuticals, Okay? That prefix, pharma, refers to, to drugs that were used to induce a hypnotic state. That's how people would get to where they could commune with the dead, was by taking drugs. So it looks like the new Christians, they'd suddenly had their eyes opened to the sinfulness of this stuff that they were involved in, of this, this black magic. And there's more evidence of this later in the text. But anyway, one comes away, I think, with the impression, based on the context, these men and women were confessing sin that they'd only recently been made aware of. That, friends, is a very important sign of a person who has truly placed allegiance in Christ. When the Holy Spirit makes you aware of a sin, your desire ought to be to leave that sin behind. 
A person who refuses to turn from sin or denies that they are in sin is in grave danger. And it is essential for Christians to understand this. You know, in, in his first letter to the churches, the apostle John wrote, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. That God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. I don't want to fit that description to you. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, I'm going to say that part again. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from some of our sin. From what? All. Cleanses us from all sin. All of it. That's vital to a Christian. I mean, literally vital. That this is our life. This is our spiritual life that Christ's blood cleanses us from all sin. And then John continues, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, we are liars if we claim to have achieved sinless perfection. And it sounds like he's saying we're without Christ if we say that we have become perfect. Sinlessly perfect. However, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. I love this one. <laughs> he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There is a, a book I already recommended. I plugged it once in Sunday school, but for those of you that weren't in my Sunday school class, there's a book by Jerry Bridges. Highly recommend it. It's called Respectable Sins. It's so good. And he talks about the sins that we accept as okay in ourselves, that we don't act like they're a big deal. Let me tell you something. Sin is a big deal. It's a big deal to God. It's a big deal to us. And that's why the gospel is so incredibly important for us to understand. That's why forgiveness is so important for us to understand, because our sin is bad so bad that Jesus had to die. Why do you think he said, that's one of the things that Bridges talks about that just blows my mind. Faithful and just to forgive. How is it just to forgive our, our rebellion, our hatred toward God? It's just because he already poured out his wrath and judgment on the cross. No, not on the wood. On Jesus Christ on the cross. He bore our sins. He bore the wrath that we deserve. So God is faithful and just because he promised he would and because he already poured out his wrath on Jesus, he will forgive us our sins. He will purify us from all unrighteousness. That is powerful stuff. I, I praise God for that passage. That is one of my absolute favorite verses. It, it, the essence of God's mercy is a response to humble confession. Do you understand that? When you say, I need you, and you mean it, God responds. Then he goes on to say, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. 
That's pretty black and white. Turn off my ringer, would you? <laughs> keeps, keeps going off. I'm sorry. It is a lie to say that we are without sin, and it is calling God a liar to say that we haven't sinned. But the alternative is admitting our sin, agreeing with God that sin is utterly sinful, including ours. And when we do that, we, we, we receive total forgiveness and we're delivered from the penalty of sin and ultimately from its power as well. That is a beautiful thing. So when we look at the reaction here of, of these people in Ephesus, their response to the power and the love of God, we see fear and then praise and then admitting both their innate sinfulness and the fact that they still sin, individual sins. This is all the fruit of newfound allegiance right here. And it actually points to something specific. And this is a concept that is not often talked about in the modern church and even less often explicitly defined. Anyone want to guess what I'm talking about? I'm referring to repentance. If you're doing the bulletin insert, it's a big line in the middle of all the boxes. The thing with all these boxes, the reason I didn't lay it out the way I normally do is because I don't think it's as linear as that. I think those boxes that we're about to fill in all represent parts of repentance. This is what we're really going to spend a lot, of, a lot of our time this morning on. So I want you to, you say, really? Because we've already been here a while. I know, I'm about halfway done. But this is the rest of it. So bear with me. It's worth it, okay? It's worth it. True repentance. All throughout the Word of God, people are told to repent. Cool, right? But what's that mean? <laughs> what does it mean to repent? And these next few verses give us a powerful example of what repentant people look like when they have pledged allegiance to Christ and truly placed their loyalty in Him. Okay, it says, we're going to use this paragraph. We're going to use it as an introduction to the concept, but I'm going to pull in some other scriptures to flesh this out. So, so keep in mind, there, there is going to be some overlap, okay, with all these boxes, but the point is to really grasp the idea of repentance so that we can do a better job of it ourselves, okay? It gives us a way to, to put a name on it, all right, so that we can say, I'm going to try to do this, okay? So with that in mind, we're going to read verse 19. It says, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. What in the world would cause a group of people so, so diverse, so spread out, to come together and do something so drastic? I think first and foremost, friends, to repent is to experience a change of mind and heart. This is what happens to a person in conjunction with being born again. I want to remind you very quickly what Jesus says about being born again. No one will enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. What does that mean? 
being born from above. Jesus said it's something the Spirit does. We can't, we can't control it. I think sometimes we try to make it formulaic. Say it's when a person says the sinner's prayer or when a person gets baptized or when a person walks down the aisle or when a person does it. Listen, it's when God does something. The Spirit of God is what's moving. The things that we do as a response to that are our response to what God is doing. So the question of when we're born again, I don't know that we always know the answer. I will tell you the truth. I don't know when I was born again. But I know it done been did. <laughs> the Lord is good. And we see that change in our lives. I don't know if it was at camp when I first cried because I realized that God sent his son to die for me. I don't know if it was before that when I confessed Christ and was baptized at 11 or again at 16. I don't know if it was when God broke me in the middle of a, a worship service two years after I had been ordained into the ministry. I don't know when that change happened. But I see the fruit of it because there has been a change of heart and mind. And I hope that you can see that in your own life, that there's a change in your heart and mind versus who you once were. You know, God told Jeremiah, he said he was going to take his people's heart of stone and he was going to give them a heart of flesh. And while it's fundamentally a one-time change, the process of repentance, I'm saying process, maybe I should say progress because it's kind of similar here, but, but it is a one-time change, but that progress continues throughout the believer's life. As long as you're alive, you should still be experiencing repentance. You should be turning toward God from sin. It's a continual molding of our hearts and minds into the heart and mind of Jesus. Paul expresses it beautifully in Romans 12 too. I probably quote this like at least once a month, you guys. I know, you might be getting tired of it, but eventually you're just going to go, okay, I know what that is. Romans 12 too. He says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. I love how J.B. Phillips says, says don't, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. You know, and he even has a U in that word because he's British, you know, mood. But he's saying, look, don't be conformed, be transformed. He says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Really, the word here is, is renewal, which is very interesting. What, there's so much here that, you know, it, it's something God does in us, and yet we're told to participate somehow. You know, to be, to be told, be Transformed is interesting. My dad explained it to me yesterday because we were talking, it just it came up, right? He said, yeah, that's a passive middle blah, blah, blah. I'm like, what? But what he's saying is, you're saying do this to me, but I'm a part of it. Be transformed. Maybe that's because there's a teachability that's required on our part. Perhaps because there's a Unnecessary submission to the process of sanctification. But, but here's the thing. This change, this change of mind, this change of heart is a requisite part of the salvation experience. If you have not been born again, you are not saved. Okay, you need to understand that. And it doesn't occur in a vacuum. This change necessarily 
will always be accompanied by a resultant change in attitude and behavior. Some people, it's very quick. Some people, it takes years. Sometimes God sees the fruit on the inside, and we don't see the fruit on the outside yet, but it is there. God knows we don't. But there will be a change. Inward change will always result in outer change. This is, I mean, really, this is clear all the way through the Bible. There's not even, I don't have to proof text it too much, but, but I'll, I'll use this. Later in Acts, Paul is describing his ministry. He actually sounds very much like John the Baptist. Uh, and he specifies that he declared that people should repent and turn to God. He doesn't stop there. He explains, he says, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. That's important. Listen, repentance isn't theoretical. It's not, it, it's not something that you just, you, you talk about pie in the sky. It's not string theory, okay? If it's truly there, it's going to have correspondent deeds. It's going to have an attitude. That's different. In our Acts passage, we don't see a bunch of people going, whoa, maybe I should stop doing this black magic stuff so much, you know. I'll just keep that book up here on the shelf. No, they're saying, I've been living in sin, and I need to do something to change my behavior. Ergo the bonfire. I want us to be clear. Some of these new Christians were probably heavily involved in the occult, not just dabblers. I mean, we see this from the fact that somebody felt led to tally up, you know, all, all the stuff that's being burned. 50,000, whatever it was, they, they don't have the actual coin, so we have to kind of guess. But most likely, 15,000 or 50,000 pieces of silver back in that day would be equivalent to several million dollars today. I mean, just, uh, just think about this. The people who are ridding themselves of all these magic books are doing so with the understanding they are not going to get them back. This is not some chance that, well, maybe I can turn around and do it later. It, it, it means they likely have the time to count the cost. And that's another part of repentance. And by that, I don't mean simply picking up an abacus and you know, adding up how much they spent on each book. I'm saying simply it represented a great amount of wealth that they weren't going to see again because it was literally going up in smoke. Jesus used an illustration with his disciples in Luke 14 saying, which of you desiring to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? It says, otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. You know, in context, he's referring to the cost of following him because the people who joined up with him, they might be called to turn their backs, and most of the time they were being called to turn their backs on everything and everyone else if that's what was required. This is an all-or-nothing kind of deal. Now, in today's passage, these people had apparently figured out that following Jesus meant burning their magic books, several million dollars worth, and they intended to follow through, which, which is a good indication of another facet of repentance, and that is to have godly affections. Have godly affections. This, this is not a phrase, once again, that we use very often today. Okay? But the Puritan writers, like John Owen and Jonathan Edwards, they, these guys were very big on talking about the affections. It was kind of a, a catch-all phrase for emotions, desires, the direction of one's heart. That was the affections. To have godly affections means we will crave 
the things of God. We'll seek His presence. We'll long for His will to be done. Perhaps one of the most clear representations of your affections is you will love the things that God loves, things that are good. And you'll despise the things that God hates, which He despises. You know, Proverbs 8.13 tells us very bluntly, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Psalm 97, it's not up here, but Psalm 97, God's people are commanded, you that love the Lord, hate evil. It's a command. Hey, you guys, you call yourselves my people? Hate evil. If we have godly affections, we, we won't be able to hate the things that God loves, and we won't be able to love the things that God hates. Now, th this is really important for us to wrap our brains around, friends. If we know, if we know that God hates the shedding of innocent blood and commands us to speak up on behalf of those who are being unjustly led to the slaughter, then how can we be on the side of abortion? If we know that God loves the poor and the widow and the orphan and the foreigner, how can we refuse to help people who are truly in need? If we know that God hates injustice, how can we rejoice when those who work hard are forced to support those who are able-bodied but will not work? We know that God loves a cheerful giver, so how can we hold back from blessing one another? We know God is truth. Scripture says He hates a lying tongue, so how, how can we lie to one another? We know God loves purity and faithfulness. So how can we flirt with strangers on the internet or view pornographic images? We ought to treasure what God treasures and throw aside what God despises, which leads us to our next point. Sometimes true repentance has to mean removing the offending factor. Now, what do I mean by that? If we look at our passage or, or at the screen, we'll see that, that there's a great example. I love this picture on the screen. A great example of people who've decided to remove the offending factor in their own lives, right? They realize they've been doing something specifically. In this case, it was, it was practicing magic. That was, and I, I don't mean prestidigitation, not, not illusionist magic. I'm talking about black magic, just for those of you. If you're like, but I had, a, I had a magician come to my kid's birthday party. That's okay, okay? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about black magic here, okay? So just to be clear, all right. Um, but they had, this was against God. They realized it, and so they burned the books of spells that they'd been using. Guys, these books are worth a lot of money in that culture. There weren't any printing presses back then. You know, you couldn't go to Barnes & Noble and just pick up another copy. When they, when they were gone, they were gone. Right? Well, you might say, well, well, why burn them? I mean, couldn't they have sold them instead and done something for the poor with the money? Who do I sound like? Right? Couldn't they have done? Listen, they could have, but then the books would have still been out there causing other people to stumble. So no, they destroyed them. And I think their actions, I think their actions here are what Jesus is talking about when he said, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. He says, it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. 
You know, if that's always struck you as harsh like it does me, then consider this. Where does sin really come from? Does it come from here or here? No, where does it come from? It comes from our hearts. It doesn't come from our hands or feet. If we could cut our, our hand or foot and it truly keep us from sinning, it would be totally worth it. But that wasn't Jesus' point. He was saying that we must reject the things that lead us to choose sin over God. Notice I didn't say cause. I said leads. Because what does Scripture say? The book of James says that each one is tempted to sin when he is led by his own desires. And then sin gives birth to death. We can't cut out our, our minds. We can't cut out our hearts. But we can remove the idols that we have placed on God's rightful throne in our minds and hearts. We can do that. I want you to stick with me for this thought, okay? Just, just an example or two. If you know, and I'm saying this because statistically speaking, several of the men in this room and possibly the women in this room have this struggle. If you know that you are seriously tempted to view pornography to the point that you sometimes give in, or even worse, plan to be alone so that you can view it, the problem is in your heart, yes. But listen, if you're not taking steps to eradicate the problem, then you're loving your sin instead of loving God. So, friend, you may have to switch out your smartphone and get one of those Nokia bricks so that you can't view stuff that you shouldn't view. You, you might need to take your computer out of your bedroom or out of your office in the house and, and do your work right in the middle of everybody all the time where anybody can see what you're viewing. You might need to get rid of HBO or Netflix or, or whatever you're watching late at night when your spouse is asleep. You've got to stop choosing sin over God. to stop choosing sin instead of God. Excise it. Cut it out while you still can. Tumors grow. They metastasize. They need to be removed. So if there's anything in your life, I'm going to say this, whatever is in your life that constantly, consistently comes between you and God needs to be removed. We've got to stop rationalizing our sin and acting like it's not a big deal, you know? And listen, I, I don't care if your sin is, is dishonesty or impatience like me or arrogance or if it's worry. It is a big deal because it's offensive to God and it's hampering our ability to grow closer to God. We need to start viewing our own sin as what it is. It is rebellion against God's authority. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. So what does it say if we live in a pattern of consistent disobedience? I, I truly hope every person in this room, I hope, and, and that's listening later, whatever, I, I hope that, that you're, you're feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit. This is not to put you on a guilt trip, okay? It, it's not, it, listen, this is not to make anybody who is already justified before God doubt their salvation, that's not what I'm trying to do here. This is so we can experience the incredible grace that Paul calls godly sorrow. 
Do you remember this conversation that Paul has in 2 Corinthians? One of, one of the greatest blessings that God gives to his people because, because it leads us into further repentance is godly sorrow. You know, Paul says, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Boy, doesn't that sound good? Whereas worldly sorrow or worldly grief produces death. Regret and remorse are worldly. That does not translate into repentance. And that's an important distinction because, listen, guys, this is what I want you to hear, okay? Satan accuses, but the Holy Spirit convicts. If you're just feeling beat down and feeling like a piece of trash because of your sin, that's probably not the Holy Spirit convicting you. That's probably Satan using the guilt to tear you down. The Holy Spirit's conviction doesn't just say, you're garbage. Ugh. The Holy Spirit's conviction says, stop, that's not who you are. The reason that we need to see how sinful we truly are, folks, it's not to remove our hope, it's to point to our true hope. It's to point to that anchor for the soul that we have and to be ever more thankful for God's mercy. You know, I mentioned Jerry Bridges earlier. He's, he's one of my favorite authors and he always reminds that we must remember the work of Jesus on the cross. Guys, when Jesus says it is finished, he paid for every sin that his people will ever commit, every single one. All of them, which is way more than we can count. He died for all of those. And so instead of feeling crushed by the weight of our guilt, we can rejoice that Christ knew we were going to commit all these sins and he still died to save us. At the same time, we can and we must turn from sin to God. We must. The very word repentance is often referred to as an about face, right? You've probably heard that before. It's a reversal of direction. It's a new Godward trajectory away from sin and toward God. All of us, apart from the grace of God, we would be running full tilt toward eternal damnation. But because, because he has opened our eyes to see the truth, let's walk in the light as he is in the light. The Apostle Peter wrote, whoever desires to love life and see good days let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I mean, guys, don't you want to experience all the benefits of faithfully following Christ? Please not, at least, so I know you do, right? Don't we want to experience those benefits? You know, as God gives us increasing awareness of our own sin and, and, and our consciences become more tuned to God's will and we respond by, by rejecting the sin and embracing the, pro the process of being made holy, that's a great thing. And what's it called? Sanctification, thank you. By contrast, though, be warned. A person who is made aware of sin in their life but has no intention of turning away from that sin. They are not showing allegiance to Christ. They're actually grieving the Holy Spirit of God, and they are subject to either discipline or wrath, depending on whether they've been justified or not by the blood of Christ. So turn away from sin, turn to God, and don't turn back. 
like the song, right? No turning back, no turning back. Church, I, I think from, from God's perspective, which transcends time, those who are elect are already glorified with him in heaven. I think that's very Romans 8. But from a human perspective, the best way to be assured of our salvation is to keep going. The best way to be assured of someone else's salvation is to observe them continuing to walk in the faith. And I want you to please allow me to to beat this drum one more time. It's not about repeating a prayer that the pastor said first. It's not about raising your hand. It's not about walking down the aisle. You know, making a public profession of faith and being immersed in obedience to Christ, that's important, okay, as to, as to whether, you know, a person has, has made a decision, but that is not the most important thing. The most important evidence as to whether a person is truly heaven-bound is that they are living a life for Christ up until the day that we meet Him face-to-face. I'm not saying all those things I mentioned are bad, but I'm saying the best evidence isn't something you did in the past. The best evidence is what's happening now. And if it doesn't look good, work on it. You and me both, pal. Our moment of of justification according to Scripture is the moment we believe but there's going to be a change and that change will produce fruit. And friends, it's not about starting the race. It's about finishing. We have to die to ourselves. Almost done. In Luke 9, Jesus made two very strong statements. First, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. I I read recently that that means say no to yourself. We don't do that well, do we? Say no, deny yourself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And then later he added this statement, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. We have to keep going, keep following, keep believing, keep trusting, keep being transformed into the likeness of Christ. Paul describes the attitude that that we need to have for this process. It's in Romans 6. He says, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He says, let not sin reign, therefore, in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members. He's talking about our body parts. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Our hands, our tongues, our eyes, our ears. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. You know, I mean, that song still matters. We should not be be giving ourselves over to sin. We should be giving ourselves to righteousness. Just like the Ephesian believers who realized they had to throw away whatever was competing for their allegiance. So in other words, act like the believers you are. That's what all this is saying. For sin will not have dominion over you. Since you are not under law, but under grace. Praise God. Thanks be to God for his son, Jesus. His his grace is the starting point and the finish line for our salvation. So let's live in it with all our might. 
Friends, this is where true societal change comes from. It's when individual Christians begin to consistently choose God over sin. Hearts don't get changed by who's in office. They get changed by the Holy Spirit of God, and they're changed through the power of the gospel. That's revealed in Luke's final words of today's text. It says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And church, I believe that the more that we walk in the light, the more God will be honored, the more his word will be spread. And when that happens, you know what else happens? People get saved. People get sa- Can I get an amen? You guys asleep? <laughs> People get saved. Their eternal destination Changes because they they meet Christ and they get to know and trust him. And listen, the more people get saved and the more that that we see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven and until the day he finally returns and makes all things new, we're going to be still doing what we're supposed to do. That stuff all goes together, friends. You know, do you want to see this change? Do you want to see it happen? You want to see it happen in our church, in in our homes, in our schools, in our town, in our state, our nation, the world. It starts with individuals that are fully submitted to God, who have placed their allegiance wholeheartedly in Jesus Christ. And friend, that can start for you today. If you have not already made that decision. And friends, I'm going to tell you something. It's not just about a decision. It's not just a choice. In order to make that decision, God has opened your eyes to the truth. If you know the truth and you are not walking in it, you need to repent. You need to repent. Listen to the Holy Spirit speaking to you. If you're a baptized believer in Jesus Christ, then literally by God, by his grace, you should be walking with Jesus. If you're not a baptized believer in Jesus Christ, you ought to do that today if you believe. Don't waste any more time. You need to do that. The Bible commands it. 